Welcome back to another episode of Product Love, hosted by Eric Bodick, serial entrepreneur and co-founder of Pendo, a product experience platform. Every day we use different kinds of products to help us go about our lives. Behind each product is a product manager who has carefully built something they hope their users love. This is Product Love, the podcast where we interview product managers and explore the craft of product management. This podcast, Product Love, is hosted at productcraft.com, which is also a cool place to find great product management content and discussion. And now Product Craft is producing a conference. And as you might expect, I attend a lot of product conferences. Many of them are very good, but after a while they start to feel like Groundhog Day. You know, same speakers, same venue, same ideas. Product Craft, the conference, is a different kind of event just for product people takes place on May 9th at the Palace of Fine Arts in San Francisco, which is a gorgeous venue, and features headliners like Guy Raz from How I Built This and G2 Patel from Box. This conference really is a passion project, and if you want to join me in an inspiring space full of product people, come to San Francisco on May 9th. You can get tickets at productcraft.com. This week on Product Love, I sat down and talked to Gibson Biddle. Gibson is the former VP of product in Netflix, and today is an advisor at Consumer Tech Product Leaders. He teaches at Stanford and really is an amazing speaker. If you haven't heard Gibbs speak, you should find a product conference where he's speaking and go. I promise you won't regret it. So I always have a blast talking with Gibb, and this podcast was no exception. Gibb would be aghast if I didn't mention the DHM model in this introduction. So let me start there. First, what is DHM? It's this idea of D, delighting customers, in H, hard to copy, M, margin enhancing ways. So this got me to thinking, do we do a good job of combining these three elements? I know a lot of old companies that do H and M well, right? And maybe they give some lip service or try to give some lip service to delight, but really they exist just to make money. And if they happen to delight you, well, great but that delight is really just pure coincidence. I also know a lot of startups that really focus on delighting customers and maybe work on the hard to copy a little bit, but frankly, I think they just hope to eventually figure out the whole margin enhancing thing. So I think we all could focus more on the hard work of getting all three of these elements correct. Well, enough for me, let's kick this off and afterwards tweet at me at eBodic or shoot me a note at ebodic at pendo.io and tell me what you think. Well, welcome over to product. I am here today with Gibson Biddle. Gib, why don't you give us a little overview of your background to kick this off? Sure. Uh, it helps to know that I'm older than dirt, but I've been doing product management for about 30 years. I started doing bang, bang, shoot 'em up games at Electronic Arts in the 90s. Then kids software, I was engaged with Oregon Trails that dates me with the learning company, Mattel. I joined Netflix in 2005 and helped them to grow until 2010. And in 2010, I ran Product for Chegg, which is the textbook rental company that went public in 2013. In the last three years, I've been engaged in creative pursuit. So I do talks, I write, I do workshops, and from time to time, I do a podcast. That's awesome. I mean, from Netflix to games to Chegg, quite a robust area of experience, textbooks, videos. Yeah, the theme is I go back and forth between doing good for the world and not. So my <laughs> wife's trying to cure cancer and like the kids stuff and the education is good, but doing bang, bang, shoot em up games or binge watching, not so good. So what was your favorite job? My favorite job, you know, it's always the first love, if you will. So was so, that games? No, the first time I became, you know, VP of product was a I was a co-founder at a startup called Creative Wonders. We, we made Sesame Street and Madeline, the little French girl, and Schoolhouse Rock software. But I really liked that. But I think it was mainly because it was the first time. And then, you know, clearly Netflix was an awesome place to work. And then I felt good about doing good for the world at Chegg, where students have saved $500 million renting textbooks instead of buying them. And that makes me feel good. Now... You also, uh, you started in marketing, is that correct? I did. I actually started in the mailroom. There you go. At an ad agency company and then grew up in sort of design, marketing, consulting. And then out of business school, I went to talk on the East Coast, but I joined Electronic Arts on marketing. And then I thought building stuff would be cool, so I switched. I became a associate producer at Electronic Arts. 
And that was a great place to learn how to build stuff. I loved it. Awesome. Now, you're one of those guys that's very customer focused. And you write about this concept of customer obsession versus customer focus. Yep. Take me through that. Yeah, it's kind of a transition in my career. In my early career, I had been trained on customer focus. That means listen to your customers. Honest to God, we were trained to put a picture of the product manager we competed against, so to be competitive. And the idea was to satisfy your customers. You know, around the time that I joined Netflix, actually, there was a bad thing. I had sold Creative Wonders to the learning company and the learning company to Mattel, and that was for $3.5 billion, a big deal. But two years later, they spun the uh, learning company out of Mattel. It was only worth $350 million. So I sort of realized that, okay, I had failed to fundamentally build long-term value. And that got me thinking about how do you do it better. So the new world for me is about customer obsession. The idea is that you're focused on delighting your customers. You're inventing this better future that's fundamentally hard to copy. So if you think about Netflix and all the things that made it hard to copy, it's got this huge network effect with all the devices that you can watch you know, your TV. It's got this unique technology called personalization that's wicked hard to copy. It's got huge economies of scales. That's the way, that's why they can afford to spend eight billion bucks on original content. So for me, a customer obsession is essentially putting the customer at the center of everything you do to delight them in these hard to copy margin enhancing ways to invent a better future. And the last 10 years of my career have been much better for being focused on that, that concept of customer obsession. So an example of that, I remember reading you talk about like, instead of just thinking about providing better product, you're pioneering new frontiers. Yep. Yeah, I mean, okay, so the key thing is I tend to focus on sort of five sources, if you will. So the consumer insight comes from qualitative focus groups. A lot of it comes from having existing data, both data that describes the business and the customer behavior. I do survey data. I'm sort of a net promoter survey freak for a variety of reasons. And then, of course, the big dog these days is being able to A-B test stuff. And that's the way that you, you know, the only way that I've been discovered that you can understand the balancing act of delighting a customer versus delivering a business. And then the last thing for me is to have a strategy, have metrics, have clear tactics that are answering the question, how will you delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways? But I got lots of fun cases and examples where through this process of consumer science, you know, the results are just surprising. So talk to me about one of those. Sure. Like in the world of personalization, Netflix knows the, the taste of 130 million people worldwide. So think for a moment if you think demographic data helps inform a person's movie taste. You know, knowing how old they are and their gender. Do you think that's helpful or not? I would guess yes, but, yeah, but because I guess yes, I know it's going to be no. <laughs> exactly. So it turns out that movie tastes are wonderfully unique. So the, the answer is the opposite of what most people's intuition is. I'll give you another one. Netflix is streaming now in 160 countries in the world. The second question is, okay, is it helpful to know that a person's French and they live in France? I'm going to say no now. <laughs> yeah, you're correct. <laughs> so if you had asked me that, I would definitely say French. It's yeah, kind of yeah. unique. Yeah, yeah. So again, people's movie tastes are wonderfully unique. And these are the kinds of insights that you get only by... Um... So all this, this big mode of personalization, useless? No, no, no. No, no, no. No, no way. I mean, I'll give you a couple more examples. Well, first, it's not useless. Because what Netflix is doing today, you know, I just think it's way cool. They are spending $8 billion launching a thousand different TV series and movies this year. I mean, that's just mind-blowing. But what they're doing is trying to right-size the level of investment in, in these different TV and movie shows because they're pretty good at guessing how many people will watch something. So Stranger Things, you know, they know that 100 million folks will watch Stranger Things, and because of that, they can spend... $500 million on it. Now, did they know that before season one or yes. after season one? They make a guess before. Okay. And then, on the other hand, they make a guess at how many people will enjoy BoJack Horseman, which I love. But, you know, the guess is like, okay, 2 million people will love that. And because of that, they can afford to spend $10 million. So this is the way they approach. They're essentially right-sizing the, the investment. 
because they have a pretty good guess of how much different folks are going to like watching stuff or not. And that's where the personalization in the data is important then as less, less for, you know, what French like versus Americans like. Yeah, I know, it's a, but it's a really tricky and, and challenging issue. I mean, I'll give you another surprise. We had a theory that if we could help you to find movies that, that were higher quality, that, that if we could get you from a three and a half star average all the way up to four or four and a half stars, that you would retain better. And as we got into it over the years, the, the average movie rating went up and up and up, but there was actually no data or evidence to support that that was improving retention. And that led to huge head scratching. And it turns out that, that the reason people come to Netflix isn't so much for watching high quality movies or TV shows by virtuous star rating, it's to watch movies they'll enjoy. So the sort of quintessential example of that is a lot of people really enjoy watching Paul Blart Mall Cop, which is a three-star movie, or Adam Sandler's The Ridiculous Six. These are examples of leave-your-brains-at-the-door comedy. And, and those are the kinds of things that bring down the star rating, but that's not really what causes a person to renew the service each month. It's really this concept of enjoyment. And, there, and that yeah, was a there, huge surprise. There's a big difference between something that's rated well and something that's enjoyed. I can think of my own personal life, my, my wife in no, particular, no. their TV yeah, choices. You're a human. Like if I asked you for a great movie, you're going to tell me that you love intellectually stimulating documentaries or Hotel Rwanda. Which but, I do like maybe once a quarter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But there's, there's lots of stuff that, you know, we're not as eager to share than what we're watching. I mean, another thing that was kind of surprising like one of our big theories was that we would, you would get great movie ideas from your friends. That you, we would create this hard to copy network. Your friends would, would connect with you on Netflix. You wouldn't leave because your friends were there. And we pounded on this, this social strategy for three years. And after three years, and our metric for that one was percentage of Netflix members who had engaged at least one friend in their network. And that started at two and went to four and got to 6%. And it wasn't growing. And it turns out the main insight was that your friends have sucky movie taste. And then we thought we could solve that through math. Uh, there was another problem. You don't really want to share everything that you're watching with your friends. You'd rather keep it a secret that you watched Mall, Paul Blart Mall Cop 2 this past weekend. Yes, I, I know there's, there's some shows that I hate to pick on my wife that she'll watch that if I mention to our friends that she watches, she'll be like, please don't tell them that. Yeah. You know, because she thinks they're going to think less of them for watching yeah. that mindless television. The cool thing for me, like personalization, it, it, it is one of those theories that work. So it does delight customers in these hard to copy, margin enhancing ways. The margin enhancing ways, it helps to build the business. Today, it's about the right size and the investment of original content. But in the past, in, in the original days with DVD, it was about helping people find great movies that were a little less expensive. Yeah, and that, that makes a lot of sense. I, I love the application to right-sizing. I think that's very powerful from a business perspective. Yeah, yep. I do too. And I, there's lots of stuff that I love to watch. So we've already mentioned MPS very briefly once. Yeah. Tell me why you love MPS so much. So, you know, at the end of the day, if your job is to delight customers in hard-to-copy margin-enhancing ways, how do you measure delight? So at Netflix, it was straightforward, which is it was retention. So in the old days, 10% would cancel, you know, when the product sucked. Today, it's probably 2%. 2% cancel each month. And that's one point because they don't have any money in their account. And the other point is because it's summer and they shouldn't be binge watching. You know, there's better things to do. So retention for me was the best way to measure delight. Net promoter score, I have found to be a reasonable proxy metric. So if you're a startup and you don't have these well-developed A-B test systems, if you're not a monthly subscription service using, you know, cancel rate, then I have found NPS to be a pretty fast way to guess at whether your product is good or not, or if you have product market fit. So if I'm working with a startup and they have a NPS of 40 in the early days, I'm like, huh, that's pretty good. And if you can get it to 50, that's great. You know, at Chegg, you know, we were a startup and we didn't have the, the benefit of everything that Netflix has. We figured out how to get the, the net promoter score up to 80. And that made a lot of goodness happen. 
the other thing was actually investors were impressed by that was one of the metrics that we gave it as we searched for the next round of funding. Personally, I do a lot of writing. I do workshops. And at the end, I've done 300 talks in the last three years. And at the end of every one of them, I ask people for feedback. And I'm pretty aggressive about asking for it. I've seen that. Yeah, you've seen that. And it's been incredibly helpful to me. So I get the score. Like I feel good if it's above 50. I feel pretty good if it's in the 60s. But generally, I feel like my job isn't done until I've got it in the 70s. And then getting in, into the 80s, there's a lot of... It's hard, especially with large audiences. Anyways, it, it was super helpful for me in understanding was my talk good or not. And then the qualitative, what was good about the talk give and what could have been better, that's where I got amazing insights. So one of my favorite talks called Netflix Wicked Hard Decisions, that came because I did a talk and, I'm, and a person named Siki Chen said, hey, Gib, we just want to know how you made the wicked hard decisions. That was his feedback. I'm like, wow, that would be an amazing talk. And of course, I'm, I grew up in Boston from Dorchester. So being able to do a wicked hard decisions talk. Anytime you totally, can use the word wicked, totally I'm a fan of. So. Totally stoked. Uh, anyways, I, I found, I mean, there's some debate about whether NPS is helpful. It's been incredibly helpful to me. So... That's where I am. It is true. At Netflix, we actually knew the NPS, but we didn't talk about it because we had a, a better, an even better way to gauge, which is did a person cancel at the end of the month or not? And in the long term, that was the, the metric that we used to look at A-B test results, for instance. But most folks, you know, they don't have 130 members paying every month. Yeah, so, 130 million. Yeah. There's a big yeah. data set. Yeah. There you go. Did you find at all that NPS was like a, a leading indicator for the risk of churn? Like if they gave you guys like a six or a seven or a four, you're like, they didn't churn now, but they're probably going to churn next month. Yeah. I mean, the reality at Netflix, the NPS is still survey data, which is, it is saying what people say. And one of the tricky parts of what people say is that they don't always do that. So there was a surprise that Netflix launched into different countries or down in South America. The, the NPS was very high and then people canceled. <laughs> uh, it turns out that's just one of those countries where, where people are much more positive in talking with you and, and then you know, negative when they actually choose to do something else. I've heard about other countries that are that way as well. The other thing that's tricky about NPS is this balancing act between delight and margin like i know how to make you more delighted with the netflix service just chop the price in half but i, I don't know you know that the problem there is like they couldn't afford more original content they did that and so nps is just what people say their overall level of delight but it doesn't help you understand which is the hardest thing this balancing act between delight and margin and i have lots of examples and cases where it was really hard to discover that. Yeah, I mean, price is a tough one with Delight because, I mean, obviously, if the cheaper or closer you got to free, the higher Delight's going to go as far as that, you know, access. Yeah, I mean, I'll just give you some kind of fun cases. A big early surprise at Netflix in the DVD days was every customer would come to us and say, gosh, it would be great if I could get my new release disc sooner. And what was going on was we, uh, a title would come out in a movie theater and two months later you'd have the, it would be available as a new release DVD. And in Qual, people were saying we want our new release disc quicker. In surveys, they were saying the same thing. Uh, the existing data supported, maybe the hypothesis, more release, you know, getting the new release disc faster would be better. And then we A-B tested it. So, you know, imagine a time when the company's got a million customers, you put 10,000 folks into a, a test cell, you know, I'm going to call it the perfect new release test. So instead of having to wait a week or two for that new release to show up in your mailbox, it showed up next day. That was the perfect new release experience for 10,000 customers in that cell. Uh, and in that case, the surprise was it only marginally improved retention. So yeah, they noticed it. Um, and you told them about it. You're like, you're in this special program. No, we didn't. No, we, oh, you just got it to them faster. Yeah, yeah. They didn't even tell them. No, no, no. Yeah, definitely did not tell them. 
you know, I'll swag it. You know, back then, maybe 4.5% would cancel each month. And the cancel rate for the folks in that perfect new release cell was 4.45. So only a slight improvement. And then if you did the math, you'd discover that that was worth about a million bucks. That was 5,000 customers times 200 bucks, which is the lifetime value. And we doubled it with this theory that they would rave about the service and bring in a, a friend. But in that case, it, it cost us five million bucks to, to get additional inventory. So there was the gain of a million bucks against the loss of five million. You know, and frankly, at the time, we couldn't afford it. So the, the controversial thing in there is that 2x that I did, you know, the word of mouth factor. Like a company like Amazon will argue from time to time that that word of mouth factor should be 8x, that, that a delighted customer will tell eight friends and bring eight friends into your service essentially for free. You know, at the time, having a 2x word of mouth was highly controversial. The CFO did not like the model, <laughs> but it was trying to, you know, engineer into the system this idea of doubling down on delight. But I'm just illustrating how we use this model of delighting customers in these hard-to-copy margin-enhancing ways. And the trickiest part was the balance of delight and margin. You know, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, Netflix, consumer product, price, you know, being an impact and delight. On the enterprise, it's really not. I mean, it is at a certain level, but it's not that it has a lot less of impact than people realize. The thing that I learned that... I think works across all products and businesses is you always, always, always need to be experimenting with the business model. So it could be price testing. So at Netflix, we were testing, A-B testing price every two weeks for life, right? The business model, we also did business model experiments. And in, back in 2005, we weren't sure how to make money. We were selling used discs. That was a, an experiment. We actually did advertising, big ad banners on the site. And we're a little surprised it did not hurt retention in any way. And then we picked up the, you know, the 30 million and high margin. So that plays out like a Chegg. We were always A-B testing the, what's the right price for a textbook rental? Like, okay, experiment like crazy. And then our real struggle was, again, how do you make money? And through business model experimentation, we finally got to this place where it's called Chegg Study. It's a monthly homework help subscription service. And that works really well. And then Chegg, you know, we experimented with sponsorship, we, with advertising, with stuff that showed up in your box. So my, my theory is enterprise or consumer, no matter what, just accept that you'll be doing ongoing price and business model experimentation for the rest of your life. And I think that's a reasonable way to think about it. So you talk a lot about data, you use a lot of data for everything. You're really serious about MPS. Is there anything as too much data? You think it'll ever overly complicate product managers? <laughs> yeah, sure. So uh, human intuition is still required. I'll do an old story and then I'll do a new story. Old story, when we launched streaming at Netflix in 2007 in January with like 300 sucky titles, we were so excited because the first time was the first time we'd know if people actually watched stuff. Like we would send a disc, we'd come back, we didn't know if they watched it. So we engineered to get all the data we could and we quickly overwhelmed ourselves. We were swimming in data and, and short on insight. So we, we developed a, you know, a short list of proxy metrics to help us with that. Today example, you know, the, the fun case for me is, um, and this is why I believe humans and judgment are still required, which I appreciate, we're not out of business yet. The Netflix, at the end of a one month free trial, the simple question is, should they send you a reminder saying that you're about to switch from free to paid? And that was tested. So what's your intuition? Is that a good idea or a bad idea to let folks know? They've already handed over their credit card. You've already told them at the end of one month, you're going to switch from free to paid. But should you send them a text? Should you send them an email? Should you let them know on the personalized homepage that the service is about to go to paid? What do you think of that? See, I'm a big customer-focused, customer-centric yeah. person. Yeah. So I think a customer in just about every business should be at the center of what you do and you should do things in their best interest. Yeah. Yeah. So my argument, my guess would be that you might have more people canceling because they're aware of the program than if not by a small little bit, yep. but I think it'll be offset by long-term goodwill. Yep. Okay. So let's do the math and that's where it gets fun, right? So uh, historically, 2% of the folks that 
hit that page, they hit the red free, you know, start your free trial for a month and hand over the credit card. It's only 2% that start the free trial, which that number is surprisingly small, but just think about it. You have to hand over your credit card, a bunch of other stuff. And the real surprise is at the end of a one month free trial, about 90% transition into the paid service. That's a big number. So if you do that, if you send, and these aren't, these are kind of my guesstimates, but if you aggressively let them know the free trial is about to end, it'll shift from 90% shifting into paid, it'll drop to only 85. So just as your intuition stated. And then I'll give you some math, just how to think about it. You know, at, at this scale, if Netflix chooses to do that, the margin impact is they lose 50 million bucks, right? But the interesting part is the delight. And I, I think you got it right, which is in that case, somebody might see that they might choose to cancel, but they also might tell, you know, what a great company is Netflix for reminding them. They might bring in a friend and they might come back later. And then the other part of delight is if for, for people who are listening right now, it might be intriguing for them to think about a company that chooses to be aggressive about letting them know this in a way that hurts their business. And so my argument here is the hard to copy thing at work is about trust and about the brand. So you got some delight, you're building this hard to copy trust and brand, and you're losing 50 million bucks. So what should the company do? And then it's always intriguing to folks to understand who makes the decision. So who do you think makes the decision on this? On something at that level? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's interesting. You know, I'm not really sure. So when you say that level, what are you saying? Is that a high $50 level? $50 million, dollars, yeah. you know, at the level of a $50 million swing, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I guess in today's day and age, is that really material for Netflix? Probably not. But at, at the point where you guys were making the decision, I'm not sure. Yeah, so this is a, this is a recent case. This is in okay. the last year or two. So you already delivered an insight. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. So it's not the CEO. It's not the CFO. It's the product manager for this. That's the person's decision. I think, I think it's Tom Willer. Anyways, he, he'll, he'll send me an email letting me know if I was wrong. In that case, he decided to do it. You know, he, he was actively saying, okay, we need to double down on delight. You know, we got to, and he also said there is a cost of ethics in building a great brand. And in this case, it's exactly 50 million bucks. To your point, he understood that this was actually a low stakes decision. And the reason it was low stakes was it was reversible. He could have backed it out at any time. And then to your point, you hinted at it. It's $50 million for a company that's got $8 billion in revenue. So generally low stakes. And the other thing that I've just illustrated here is a big part of the Netflix culture is to, this, was, this would have been debated. Like the humans are needed. Like we have the data, but what's the right thing to do? And then at the end of the day, Tom decides. And then the folks that thought it was a stupid idea, they just magically got behind him. So the third part is to, to, to debate, to decide, and then to do. And so Netflix has a nice, you know, I call it high level of business maturity where people can go through this fearsome debate, see the decision to the person who owns it, and then magically get behind that person and the decision. And that, is, that last cool. part's hard. I mean, people I think, hard. oh yeah, you know, we yeah. debate, yeah. we disagree, we all yeah. get behind it. It's a lot harder to do that last part, that getting behind it, when you fundamentally don't agree with something oh, that people I think. Well, it's I, easy to say I, you're gonna get behind totally, it. Totally, because the other thing, Netflix, you know, I'll, I'll describe it as debate, decide, do. At Amazon, it's disagree and commit. Right? Yes. They're, they're trying to get the aggressive disagreement. I think I saw on your wall, you have, it's not radical candor. What's the phrase you use here? Brutal honesty. Brutal honesty. Yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, like I'm a believer. I've been married for 27 years. And, you know, what I grew up on was good fights make good marriages. So it's worked out, right? But it's, it's these debates that help really sharpen the thinking and get all the issues on the table, including, you know, the voice of the customer. And, you know, I sort of shared with you how they are represented in this, you know, how do you delight customers in hard to copy margin enhancing ways? You like that phrase. I do. Yeah. I mean, I'm a teacher. So teachings about developing tools, frameworks and models that are helpful. And then repeating um, them. And then repeating them. I call it lather, rinse, repeat. <laughs> Ad nauseum. And I have a lot of them. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I hand these tools, models and frameworks to product leaders and hope they are helpful. And I think they are. So let's talk about some of the things we touched on. 
product strategy, customer obsession, consumer science. Tell me why they're important to teams as they work to invent the future. You know, we're in San Francisco, Silicon Valley. Everyone's inventing the future here. Yeah, I mean, I understand that like 70% of what we do is execution. You got to execute well. You got to execute quickly. And then I believe in essentially high cadence experimentation. One of my theories is that Netflix succeeded because of high cadence failure. Like we could take a dozen high level theories and hypotheses and about half of them worked. Like the friends and social failed, but the personalization worked. So I I sort of look beyond the execution, like take, and, and everybody got way into agile and that's way cool. But I try to get more focus on what are you choosing to build? And for me, it's product strategy that informs it. And so I, that, that, that DHM model is trying to inform, you know, what are the high-level theories and hypotheses. My mistake in my early days was I, was I got pretty good at satisfying and delighting, but I was not very good on the hard-to-copy stuff, which is why, you know, the company that we sold to Mattel was worth $3.5 one year, and two years later only three and a half, you know, $350 million, a tenth of that. So I, this is the reason, one of the many reasons that I... I try to focus more energy on, on what's the stuff that you can build that's hard to copy. And frankly, I learned not to be as competitive. That if you can delight customers in these hard to copy margin enhancing ways, you'll find yourself sort of without competition, which is good. I mean, think about if you were a punk startup, it would be really scary to try to compete with Netflix today. And there's a lot of big companies that find it kind of scary to compete with Netflix. Today. Yeah, if you were going to compete with Netflix yeah. today as yeah. a punk startup, you'd yeah. have to pull a niche that was growing fast and say, <laughs> we're going to go after that niche and yeah. we're going to delight our customers in ways that Netflix is going to be unable to. Yeah, or maybe you look way ahead. You'd say, we're going to do 3D, VR, augmented reality storytelling because that's where we think the world will be 10 years from now. And, you know, this is what startups do. They have to invent the future out of nothing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyways, for, for product managers, I was just nicely saying, yeah, execution is important, but I learned that I could sort of get 6, 12, 18 months ahead with a little bit more focus on strategy. And then being thoughtful and careful about having proxy metrics that help understand what, whether those strategies are working, and then pounding on these high-level strategies with various tactics or projects. I found that helpful. I mean, the other challenge is as you grow up and companies get bigger, you know, there's a lot of, you know, the natural end state is chaos. So as a leader, you have to do a lot of stuff to help keep people aligned. And doing the lather, rinse, repeat on outlining the key product strategies has been super helpful to me. I mean, another model that I use is called Glee, you know, G-L-E. And Netflix, you know, job one was to get big on DVDs. And then the next chapter of our life was to lead we called it downloading. The word streaming didn't exist at the time. And then the third chapter we anticipated was once we didn't have to do DVD by mail and, and hook into postal systems, we could finally launch internationally. And that Glee model, I just described 20 years of Netflix and, and these different chapters of focus and phasing, that was super helpful to us in understanding you know, what we needed to focus on today and what we needed to focus on five years from now. And sort of avoided the the phenomenon of, you know, I call it bunch ball. When you watch little kids play soccer, there's 12 people all right around the ball and no one's really playing their position. So for me, these tools and models and frameworks are about providing some ways that leaders can talk about what they're trying to do in ways that the whole company understands and can stay aligned and, and not engage in, in bunch ball. So let's talk about mistakes PMs make. You know, what's a common mistake you see? <laughs> Well, this is the benefit of being older than dirt. Uh, I've made a lot of them. So, well, I sort of gave, gave one, is so much focus on the how to build stuff and the execution without stopping for a moment to sort of apply a strategic lens, you know, to really focus on how do we decide what stuff we should build. You know, as, as you grow, the, the key ones are failing to spend a day and a half per week on recruiting, building, and developing teams. That's a very common mistake, but uh, you know, that, that was my life. You know, I, I choose carefully, I choose companies that I think are gonna grow up and grow fast and to, 
to do that, you need people. So giving a day and a half a week to recruiting, building and developing teams was helpful. I didn't always do that. <laughs> There's a lot of things PMs should do and they know they should do that they don't always do. We'll get into that in a minute too. Really? They, they so. know what to do and they don't do it? They're humans? Yeah, I know. It's <laughs> shocking, huh? <laughs> so, my wife says that. She seems like a topic for this one. She's like, you know to do this, but you didn't do it. I was like, yeah, it happens a lot, honey. Oh, you know, I think other mistakes are, it's tricky. So my, my career insight to myself is I wish I had been bolder, right? So I think most folks probably over-engage in optimization and they probably under-engage in, you know, these bold bets, as you suggested. But, you know, I could go on for about seven hours on all the mistakes that I've made and others make. But that's a good short list to focus on. So we, we talked a little bit about decision-making process of product managers. Let's talk about that a little bit more and how they should be making decisions. Okay, so I'm a little bit maniacal about this, but I believe that the product leader at an organization should be able to articulate the product strategy. They should be clear about the metrics, the ways that they measure that. And then they should be clear about the project or tap tactics that map against each of those key strategies. So for instance, at Netflix, the big dog was retention, but an important theory or hypothesis about how to help improve retention was personalization. The proxy metric for that was at the end of the first six weeks of a new customer's life, what percent gave at least 50 ratings? You know, our theory was if you gave your explicit ratings to us, then you valued the output. So, and then projects or tactics, you know, we invented something called the ratings wizard that actually helped us to get into the high 20s on, on that proxy metric that, you know, 25% of the new members would rate at least 50 movies in their first six weeks. It was phenomenal. Other projects or tactics in the personalization area, we, we did the Netflix prize. We went from having two engineers in the building doing collaborative filtering to 10,000. That was a project or tactic. My point is that you start with the strategy and then you have the proxy metric that helps you understand whether you're you know, making progress or not. And then, then all those projects and tactics are just, they exist to prove whether that high level strategy is you know, right or wrong. Um, decision making, you know, I'm a big fan of getting everybody together every quarter. I call them quarterly product strategy meetings. And when I was the product leader, I would outline the high level strategy, but I expected each of the product leaders to be able to describe the product strategy in their swim lane or their pod, whatever language you want to use. So like I could talk about it for the overall organization. They could say, okay, in my swim lane, the one metric I'm going to pound on is this. Here are my theories and hypotheses about how to move that metric, and here are the projects and tactics against it. And then, you know, frankly, we just had a little debate on the, the free trial or, or the new release DVD case. You have results and learnings, you share them, and then you'd engage in debate. And at the end of the day, the product leader you know, would make the decision. But I found that those quarterly product strategy meetings, what the problem I was trying to solve is there was so much learning going on, I wanted to make sure it was shared. So, you know, insight you get from a free trial test was understood by a person in another area. And then the other part about that quarterly product strategy, meaning the hard part, was that's how, you know, I and others were making resourcing decisions. So after three years, when our friends and social effort, you know, only got their proxy metric up to 6% of members, you know, were engaged in this friend network, that was the time to kill it. And so we essentially stopped that effort and we took all the resources from it and doubled down on personalization, which was making great progress. So that's how I did it at scale. You know, startups, there's, there's a lot of intuition. And, you know, the fun part is there's actually faster paced experimentation, which I think is cool. As long as you have the data sets, right? As long as you have some data. Like, you know, my definition of data, it could be the qualitative, it could be the existing data, it could be the results of A-B testing, it could be results of survey. And every one of those has strengths and weaknesses. So, you know, I, I find a blend of what you can get. The poor startups can't get the A-B test stuff, but, you know, they can get all three of those other ones I described. Mm -hmm. And then they should be able to frame a, a, a strategy based on what they learn and, and what they see and what they change going forward and based on talking to customers or any other data source.
So yeah, there's plenty of data to be had, even if you're you know four people around the table at the start. I think that's a good point because a lot of people go to, oh, we can't do A-B testing. No, but it's, there's it's, tons of other data out there. Yeah, it's a common refrain. Hey, Gib, can you talk about, like, okay, I get that Netflix has the A-B test systems, but how do you do it in startups? And I just nicely point out the, the data that you can get. So that leads me to something that it's kind of like a, a bone I pick these days with, with some product managers I talk to. And that's how often should product managers be talking to customers? You know, people always say they should, but how frequently should they be having these conversations? And I asked this to a person who I think talks to customers every single instance he gets, meaning you at the end of every talk, and you're the only one I've ever seen do this, you'll ask for NPS and then you ask for feedback all the time. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I have the benefit of focus, right? Like, yeah, 70% of my life is building new talks. (laughs) It's fundamentally easier than building a company. Okay, so I'll go through the scale. It's like I, in the falls, I'm a guest lecturer at Stanford. I, I teach entrepreneurship to engineers. And I spend my life trying to get an engineer to go out and talk to customers. They are certainly doing it twice a week, right? I mean, that's really the only data they can get their hands on. As companies grow, it was certainly helpful to me to talk to real live customers at least once a week. And then frankly, at Netflix, one of our challenges was we learned that we needed to get outside of the Silicon Valley, out of the Bay Area, because there aren't that many normal people. And so I actually, at some point, once a quarter, I would engage in two or three days of qualitative in places like Cleveland or Providence, Rhode Island, or Cleveland's Boulder. where the normal people are? Yeah, yeah, compared to here. like. And then the folks that know me, they were always a little bit suspicious that I managed to find places where I could also go skiing in the winter. <laughs> but those those quarterly trips, it was neat because we we'd have six or eight times eight you know groups of people, normal people. They would be uh, non-members, they'd be members, and we would be listening to them, and we would be throwing theories and hypotheses into the room, you know, via prototypes or you know what the new non-member page should look like and it actually helped us to develop the voice of the customer but just as important begin to develop some shared language among us as a team so that we could you know work better and faster together personally i i love qual i mean i you know i love talking to people i love learning about them you know it was a source of strength for me i mean netflix like everybody's wicked data smart you know, I, I had good fortune to take statistics in business school, but I'm sure if you walk in the building there, there's people that are masters in statistics and have studied it for four years or whatever it is. Anyways, short answer is probably once a week is really helpful cadence. So we talked a lot about data, process, frameworks, product management becoming a science? <laughs> That's a good question. So I have found it to be both art and science. So is that a craft? Maybe craft is a good word. You know, it's a creative process, right? And building stuff is hard. It doesn't matter if it's a house or a piece of software or a a website or, you know, a piece of hardware. Certainly the experimental method has become wicked important in the last 15 years via A-B testing. I love when you say wicked. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, it brings me back to growing (laughs) up in Massachusetts. You know, what's uh, here's the fascinating thing to me which is product management has been changing every decade and the jobs are so different. You could be in consumer, you could be in enterprise, you could be early stage, you could be later stage, you could be software, you could be hardware. And because of that, oh, and then frankly, by definition, it's changing really quickly. Like this idea of A-B testing didn't really exist 15 years ago. Or, you know, people were just beginning to understand how important design was and, and the complexity of doing it well on, a, on an iPhone, right? That, that really didn't happen for in the last 10 years. So it, it just changes so quickly, which is, I think, one of the reasons that I don't think you see that many product management courses, you know, the way you see a statistics course. But who knows? Clearly, in the next 10 years, that we all have to be really smart about machine learning or AI or voice or 
I just mean, new areas. To PM's learn. a young profession too, compared yeah. to like sales or marketing, right? Maybe. I mean, this is my belief. I think it came out of sort of like the consumer packaged goods, like working at Keebler or you know snack companies, and then I think Intuit sort of picked it up in in the modern era, and then I think they they helped lots of other companies like Microsoft or you know all of them today understand what this product manager is. But for instance, when I, I started Electronic Arts, I actually was a product manager, but it was a marketing function. This is in 1991. And at the time when I switched into product, I became a producer. They were borrowing from the, the movie model. I'm just pointing out how big the changes have been in 20 and 30 years, and that rate of change will continue. It's going to continue. I mean, even today, I, I did this study with Product Collective, Mike Belsito, who's going to be honored to hear that. Yeah. Cleveland has the normal people. Yeah, He's going to be yeah. very proud of that. But we did this study where where do product management, where does product report? Yeah, Even yeah. today, it's still mostly reports into marketing. Yeah, that feels wonky to me. I think it is completely wonky <laughs> as an ex like you, an ex-marketing yeah. guy. Yeah, and yeah. I loved having product management report yeah. to me, don't get me wrong, yeah. but it, it feels wonky. Well, what's, the reason I shifted from marketing into product is I love to build stuff. And marketing, you know, they are about building a brand, but the set of skills that you require to help a team of engineers and designers and data scientists build stuff together is radically different from what most marketing people do today. Now, I, I got good at helping marketing and product work together. At the end of the day, it's, it's marketing's job to define the brand and it's product's job to bring it to life. And that's the most substantial source of fighting between marketing product and it's now we're getting a little religious about how those two functions can work together. But no, I, it feels odd to me that a builder would be working for a marketer. So what, what upcoming trends do you see in product management? Well, I just ratcheted through it pretty quickly. You know, the, the machine learning, the AI, the VR, the voice, like these are new stuff that I certainly would like to learn about. Obviously the cadence is of building stuff has gotten faster and faster. Uh, the opportunity to do A-B testing has gotten easier and easier. From my perspective, I went from floppy disks to CD-ROMs to internet. <laughs> you know, that's, I just described 30 years. The next big platform, it's probably in the wheeled house of uh, voice. Uh, there's obviously been a big change getting to mobile as well. I don't know. I'm not that good at predicting the future. Yeah, no, I, if I look at the technology, I definitely see AI and machine learning. Yeah. I think there could be some really cool stuff that comes there. Yeah. I think the interface with voice is going to change how we interact with products in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Yeah. I look at that as more tech direction. Product management, I see you know, a lot more process frameworks, data usage. I mean, a lot of the stuff you talked about doing at Netflix, I would not say is commonplace for technology and software product managers. Mm -hmm. And I think that's going to get strengthened a lot. Yeah. I think you know, the stuff you talked about is more leading edge of a yeah. lot of that. No, you're right, because I had a lot of luxury. I mean, just being able to set up that perfect new release DVD test circa 2005, that meant that you could control who got what disk. Like, it wasn't just presentation layer change, which I recognize today, you know, a lot of the testing is via Optimizely, where it's, you know, just the front end. And I know they're going deeper, but you're right. The, the growth in consumer science via A-B testing is going to continue to be big in the next 10 or 15 years. Yeah, I mean, I can see personalized interfaces where the interface you have to software is different than me based upon, totally. you know, our roles at first, but maybe yeah. based upon our, you know, what we do day to day over time. Yeah. And the things that I watch out for as we go forward is getting too process oriented. And too personalized, too. No, 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 I don't worry about the personalization. I do. I think you I did? had an app that shut off a feature I needed the other day, and I actually couldn't do something. Huh. Like, mm -hmm. literally, it was logging on. I, I assume it was a feature flag kind of thing. Yeah. And it was something I needed to do for the airline. And they determined that I didn't need to do that. Yeah. So then I had to go get a piece of paper. Yeah. <gasps> you know, a gas. No, you're right. But you, <laughs> like a, you know, you are not a normal person, right? The fact that you noticed that. Well, I noticed what was going on behind the scenes, yes. Yeah, yes. I didn't know it wasn't a bug. Though. It was a bad feature flag. <laughs> yeah, who knows what it was. So we've talked a lot of, about a lot of different things today. You know, top three takeaways for listeners? Did I mention the DHM model? The, the idea of delighting customers in hard-to-coffee, margin-enhancing ways? I think, I, I think you did, but that would definitely be one of your takeaways, I think. Yeah, this notion of customer obsession that it's all about putting the customer at the center of every 
thing you do to delight them in these hard-to-copy margin-enhancing ways to invent the future. And that's a lot of work. So just those two ways of thinking I, I'm, I am hoping are helpful. So let's talk about Gib now. Yeah. Favorite product and why? Could be software, could be otherwise. Yeah, I'll do two. I mean, so for me, I get totally enamored of products that just keep getting better. I mean, it's so amazing. Like, so DJI Phantom Pro is a, I, they're now essentially on the fifth generation and I, I now have the fifth version. Yeah, have um, you had all five? Yeah, I have. Yeah. And so that's, that's why I know the progress. It's just been remarkable. And I love it. I, I got what I used to, when I was in college, I actually learned to fly. And then I realized that it was too expensive to be safe. So I, I stopped flying. But I'm into remote control devices. And the drones are really cool because I can do the remote control flying plus photography. So the aerial photography. So I just love that. And the fact today it's so small, I can put it in my backpack and I can take it anywhere. So that's one. Okay. So then I'm sure the iPhone is on everyone's list, but occasionally I just see little touches like, huh, they make a big difference. So I was backpacking in Japan and my normal camera died, my Sony HD 400. So it's a, it's a little one. I tend to kill them every two or three years. And then I also killed my phone. So don't use iPhones while navigating and backpacking in snow country in the summer. But I bought the new iPhone and... What I realized was that finally the pictures that I was able to take on my iPhone were as good as my real camera. In fact, the depth of field where you have sort of a blurry background, which is sort of a hallmark of of a real camera, I was really impressed with it. Uh, The other thing that's fun, I think you might have seen me do that in the last month, when I asked for survey responses, I put up the QR code on a huge screen. And if you're on an iPhone now, if you point your phone at it, it will automatically bring up the link. So I, I joke that for the first time in the history of, of the world, the QR code was helpful. And that's pretty accurate. I mean, I think yeah. they've been around forever and people are like, oh, we see them everywhere in Japan. And yeah. it's like, yeah. I'm just in Japan. I yeah. saw them nowhere. And now, so I don't know where these rumors come from. But now if, if you don't actually have to do anything, yeah. if it's that brain dead easy that you can just yeah. flash your phone at it and something comes up without having to download something, without yeah. having... And I will, I'll tell you the fun thing about that is, you, you know, I'm a feedback freak. So I, I get all my NPS data. I was in Toronto. I got 230 responses from a 400-person audience. And then I was talking to folks after. And I'm surrounded by the tech cool kids. They're like 25. And they say, you should try a QR code. I'm like, no, you're, you're crazy. Like, QR codes are worthless. I see them in the airport. They're as old as dirt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I said, okay, I'll just try it tomorrow. And I tried it tomorrow. And oh my God, the, every phone in the house went up. And it worked. It, it blew me away. Now, you can't do it on Android yet, so I apologize. But both the DJI Phantom and the iPhone are just examples where I just consistently see it get just keep getting better. And yes, I talked about companies that might optimize too much better. But I just love, love, love it when you can see year by year just amazing progress. And so for both of those products, that's what I've seen. So final question that I always ask, three words to describe yourself. Oh, that's pretty easy. I am thoughtful, I am disciplined, and I am quirky. (laughs) So I am who I am. Well, this is awesome. I had a whole section of questions on hiring product leaders that we didn't get to. And I feel like we're going to have to bring Gib back for round two, you know, where we can go into hiring, building teams. So we'll have to do that another time, but I'm anxiously looking forward to that. So thanks for being with me here today, Gib. This is awesome. Yeah, it's fun to be at Pendo, and thanks a ton, Eric. And I, as always, I appreciate your pink T-shirt. <laughs> this has been Product Love. Thank you for tuning into this episode. Check out the rest of our articles and interviews on ProductCraft.com, an online magazine by and for product people.